Open your Bibles with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 12. We're going to look at a few scriptures, then we're going to talk about some things. We go through our lives one day after another, which is what you have to do. One moment after another. And after a while, you know, when you're a child, you look forward to the, the next Christmas and the next holiday and your next birthday, you know, and it seems like it's never, ever going to come. And then you hit 30 and you hit 40 and 50 and 60 and they keep coming, <laughs> which is good. But they come faster and faster and faster and you look back over your life and you wonder, where did it go? One day follows another, one day follows another, and what you realize is you're living your life out. You're literally spending your life, every moment of every day, right now. You are spending moments of your life you will never get back. And because there's so many of them and because we're so used to, I look back over 65 and a half years of just spending my life and investing it and doing different things with it, there's just the assumption things are just always going to go along the way they are. And then we hear messages like we heard this week. We see news stories of, of, a, of a city and a nation that's in terrible upheaval and riots going on where only weeks ago there was peace, one of the more stable nations in that part of the country. Don't have to look back that far. I grew up in my, um, in my uh, maturing years, some of which I'm still in, <laughs> maturing years recognizing that the world was divided through t between two world powers. There was the United States, and then there was the Soviet Union. We watched an entire world force disappear in front of our eyes in a matter of weeks and days. I never would have imagined that in a, a, a world power like the Soviet Union could dissolve so quickly. And it was an awakening thing to me. And, and what's going on in Egypt right now is an awakening to me to realize things are not always going to stay the way they are. The Bible gives us perspective on that, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The Bible gives us perspective on that. We see in, 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 in I think it's Peter, talks about the fact that, that the day in which you and I live is a day that the prophets longed for. They sensed in their spirit that there was a day like this coming. They sensed in their spirit when the prophecy was given, understand that, that they did, it didn't come through their mind, it came out of their spirit. And as it comes out of their spirit, their mind is trying to understand what their spirit is saying through their mouth. And they're trying to understand it just like everybody else did. And they recognized that God was speaking up in addition to his, what he was saying to Israel and to the other nations of that day. He was also saying something about a time down the road that's the time you and I have been assigned to live in. You understand you've been assigned to live now by God. Your birth, no matter what your parents thought, was not an accident. You have been appointed by God to be alive at this particular time. We need to look at it and realize what a from you look at it from God's perspective and what God's plan is, what an incredible privilege that God would choose us to represent Him at this time. Hebrews chapter 12 begins by saying, therefore having such a great cloud of witnesses that have gone on before us, referring to the prophets and all the kings of Israel and referring to the, the apostles and all those brethren that have gone on before us, you understand we're part of a, we're part of a body that's not just what's alive on the earth today. We're the tail end of it. We're the, we're the, we're the last leg of the, of the relay race. But when a team runs a relay race, those that run the first leg and the second leg and the third leg, they don't get showered and go home and wait to read in the newspaper tomorrow what happened with the race. They stand around cheering the one that's running the anchor. I was on a track team when I was in, in high school because everybody had to be on something. And I'm, I know what my role was to make sure nobody else came in last. Some of you will understand that when you get home. I was not gifted at running, but I had to do something. We ran relay races, and I discovered that when you run a relay race, if I remember correctly, the two fastest runners are assigned the first one 
and the last one. The second fastest is given the first because he sets the pace. But the fastest runner, the one with the greatest speed and impulse in him, is the one that's put last. Why? Because that's the one that's got to make up whatever the others were not able to do. And you and I have been called to be the anchormen of God's relay team. So God's perspective on where we are is different than ours. Now, did you find 1 Chronicles chapter 12? All right. Give you a little bit of background on what's going on here because there's some other scriptures I want to look at. But this is a very tumultuous time in the history of Israel. What's happened is King Saul, the, the people of Israel cried out for a king. God gave them Saul. Saul, after a number of years, got off track. And he decided that, 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 that his, he, his security was in the people, not in the God that had called him. And as a result, he disobeyed God because he was relying on the approval of the people that he was leading and not on the direction of God. And God had to say, I repented of making you king, and God appointed his successor, and he knew who his successor was. It was David. But David was appointed as a young shepherd boy. And David went through this terrible time of, 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 of before he was actually made king, where Saul, because he was jealous and opened himself up to other spirits and ultimately to a witch, set all of the military forces of, Egypt, of, of Israel out to kill this young man that God has appointed to be his successor. That's how insecure Saul was. And now what's happened is Saul has been killed in battle. And David has been appointed, first of all, as king over two tribes. And now what's happened is the other ten tribes have come to him and said, we want you to be king. Now there's a, so there's been a change in leadership. And it didn't happen peacefully, and it didn't happen, it, but it happened suddenly. And now what you have is you have a sorting out of allegiances. And so what's happening in chapter 12 here is you see, you see tribes deciding who they want to align themselves with. And we're not going to take the time to go back because it's not our point this morning. But there's some of the tribes that were descended from Saul, and they were the tribe of Benjamin, and they were still hung back because they weren't sure where they were going to place their allegiance. So what I want you to understand is this was a time of uncertainty. This was a time of upheaval. This was a time where the King David was assembling together a military force so he could secure the position that God had put him in. And he goes through here in chapter 12, and there's a listing of the men that came to him from the different tribes. They came from Ephraim, and each one of these, they, not all of them, but many of them said something special about them. Some of them says they were mighty men of valor. Some of them didn't say anything about them, they just showed up. But we come down to verse 32, and there's a very interesting statement in here. One of the tribes of Israel was Issachar. Verse 32 says, And the sons of Issachar, and this is what God says about the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times. In other words, they didn't just live their life one day after another, reacting to what happened next, looking at what it said on CNN and Fox News, and deciding what the, how they were going to feel that day. They didn't let the pundits and, the, and the, the commentators of their age interpret for them what was going to happen. I'm concerned because too much of the church is doing that. They're letting commentators, in most cases, who don't know God, interpret for us what the events mean. You understand the day of journalism is gone. Journalism is when you simply say, this is what happened. When, where, and how. What we have now is editorializing the facts. We're told what happened, what it means, what it's going to mean, what's going to happen by people who don't know. Why are they more qualified than you or me? I understand they may know the facts better because they've got resources that are there to observe them, but why are they more qualified to interpret them to us than the church is who has the Spirit of the living God on the inside of us, who Jesus said He was going to send to the church to lead us into all truth. Now listen to this. And to tell us things to come. You say, but this particular commentator is a Christian. That's fine. 
But is he speaking by the Spirit of God? What is the source of your news? That's fine to read the newspaper. But who's telling you what it means? And in the, the, the tribe of Issachar, there were a people who didn't do that. These were a people who had a sense from God what the time was they were in. They understood what the time was, what their point in time in history was. It's the only people that it says that about. So it tells me that that understanding is rare. It tells me that not everybody who is of the people of God has an understanding of the times we're in. It's available to everybody, but most people are so busy with what's going on in their lives and how things affect their lives that we don't lift our eyes up enough to God in His Word to allow God to tell us what's going on. The sons of Issachar who had an understanding of the times, look at this, to know what Israel ought to do. It's not just knowing what's going on, but the reason we need to know what's going on is so we know how we are to respond. The Apostle John in 1 John has a verse in there where he says, there are many voices out there. And boy, if there were many then, there are a whole lot more today all telling you what things mean. And he says, none of them are without significance. They all have some significance. Significance doesn't mean they're the truth. It means it has an impact. Every voice you listen to has some impact on you. Because faith comes by hearing. So whatever you're listening to, you're developing your faith in. And the sons of Issachar somehow had learned to listen to God. And by listening to God, they had developed God's perspective on the times they were in. And as a result, they knew what Israel ought to do. Now stay with me. Let's go to Luke 19. Obviously, in Luke 19, the Son of God has now come and is dwelling among us. And there were some people he said things to, and they liked what he had to say. And there were other people he said things to, and they didn't like what he had to say. But I think one thing we could all agree on is that whatever Jesus said, he spoke the truth. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't make it user-friendly. He didn't tone the word that he spoke down so that it would be easier to receive and more people would like his message and gather around him. In fact, if you read John chapter 6, he had such a crowd around him, he started saying things that drove him away. Because they were following him for many different reasons. Here he's speaking to the Pharisees. And they've asked him for a sign to prove who he is. We'll look at verse 41. Now as he, that's Jesus, drew near, he saw the city, that's Jerusalem, and he wept over it. And this is what comes out of his heart to Jerusalem. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, so this was the day. This is what it talks about in the, in the, in the law, in, the, in Leviticus. It talks, about the day, it talks about the day of Jubilee, the year of Jubilee. It talks about a Jubilee coming. A Jubilee, we don't have time to get into the details of it, but it was a time when God reversed curses. He, he delivered people. He restored those that were broke. He reversed debts. He, he delivered everything that needed to be delivered. 
And when Jesus came back to his own hometown after having launched into his public ministry, he stood up and he read out of Isaiah where it says that, and this is the day of the Lord, the, the, the day of the Lord, and he said, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your sight. In other words, the year of Jubilee has started when I came. Your deliverance is here. And then he said some things they didn't like and they took him out to kill him. But it wasn't time. Now Jesus is near the end of his ministry, <coughs> excuse me, and he is looking over the city of Jerusalem saying this, if you had known even you, especially this your day, in other words, this was your opportunity, the things that make your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. In other words, you've had an opportunity. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you. That's a siege wall. Because the cities had walls around them, and the way a nation, an army would overcome that wall, they couldn't blast through it. They didn't have nuclear rockets and things like we have today. They couldn't go over it. So what they would do is they would starve them out. They would build a wall around so nothing could get in and nothing could get out. And then eventually what they might do is build it high enough so they could climb up on their own embankment and walk over the wall. That's what they eventually did down in Masada. The Romans did. Verse 44, And they will level you. This isn't sounding like good news, is it? And your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. And that did happen in Jerusalem. Why? Because you did not know or recognize the time of your visitation. Your deliverance was here. The day of your jubilee was here, and you did not recognize it, and now you're going to have to go through something God did not ordain for you to go through. But because you did not recognize the time and the moment that God gave you, You missed your opportunity. See, we have this illusion because we live in a time called grace. And we think what grace means is God just turns his back on what we're doing. And he just kind of lets things slide because he's a God of love and mercy and grace. If you read the whole book, you discover that this time we're in, this period of grace, is like a parenthesis. And within that, God's wrath is withheld. God's judgment is withheld. He's an opportunity for people to repent, become right with God, so that when, God's, when the, you get outside the parenthesis, we're not destroyed. But the Scriptures are clear. There's going to come a day when this age of grace is over on the earth. When the door of opportunity will have closed. Jesus, as he came near the end of his public ministry, said more and more about the urgency of the opportunity that they were given that it would not be open for long. And here he's just lamenting over the city of Jerusalem that God loves. It is God's city. His name is upon that place. It is, it is his special place. And he's saying, because you didn't realize the opportunity that was given to you, You've missed the day of your visitation. Well, let's look on to more good news. <laughs> let's go to Matthew 16. Verse 1. And here are the Pharisees and Sadducees of coming to him. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came testing him which means they're not looking for truth. They're trying to trick him. Testing him and asked him that he would show them a sign from heaven to prove who he was. Jesus answered and said to them, When it's evening, you say, It will be fair weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, It will be foul weather today because the sky is red and threatening. In other words, <clears throat> you've learned how to recognize what the weather's going to be like tomorrow by certain signs that you've associated 
through your lifetime, you've recognized that when it's, when, the, when it's red at night and you're going to bed and the sun's going down and you have a certain color in the sky, that means that tomorrow it's going to be a good day. But you've also recognized when you get up in one morning and the sky looks another way that you better take your umbrella with you because it's going to be foul weather. So you've learned to associate what you can see in the natural with the natural weather that's going to follow it. So you've developed the ability to discern natural things. And now here comes the lesson. You hypocrites! He wasn't trying to say things to make him popular. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and no sign shall be given them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. What that's referring to is Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish. And that's symbolic. He really was, but that's symbolic because Jesus talks about it elsewhere, is he would be three days in the belly of the earth and then he would be brought forth. That was his resurrection. So he's saying the only sign you're going to get is I'm going to be raised from the dead. I think sometimes what we look for as Christians is we're looking to be led by signs. The Old Testament, they call them fleeces. The only one who was ever authorized by God to use a fleece was Gideon. Most people that use fleeces are fleeced. A fleece is when you say, if this happens, then that must be God's will. If it doesn't happen, it must not be God's will. You're dealing in an arena that the devil controls. If my phone rings three times in the next half hour, that means it's God's will. People do things like that. Oh, you may not be that sophisticated, but you may do some more sophisticated things. Oh, this was an open door because everything looked good. I saw miracles. That has to be God. Jesus said, even, Paul says, even Satan can appear as an angel of light. People came to Jesus in Matthew 7 and said, Lord, we perform mighty miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. You practice lawlessness. Satan is the god of this realm. He can counterfeit things. Well, how do we know? That's what we're going to talk about. God's given us a knower. It's the spirit of the living God in you. It's not your eyes. It's not your ears. It's not your hands. It's not how you feel. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. Yeah, that may be good, but that may not be the Holy Ghost. It may be the person jumping next to you and the music, and it may be that you like what you're hearing. I don't see a lot of people jumping around for joy what Jesus was telling them then. There's times to jump and times to shout. But you've got to know the times you're in. You've got to know the times you're in. And in this day, it is critical that we know the times that we're in. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul's instructions to the churches at Ephesus. It's interesting because he begins this chapter. Of course, he didn't write it in chapters and verses, but the chapter begins by talking about walking in love, which is what we've been studying up until now. And then he talks about some specific ways to act that out. Now, now that he's got them focused on walking in love, verse 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Notice your light, light doesn't mean you don't weigh much. Light means you're walking in truth. You're, you're, you're now in the truth, but it's because you're in the Lord. It's not because you're so smart. You get away from the Lord, and you're not so smart anymore. Walk as, now, now if you're, because you're in the light, because you're in the Lord, walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to who? To the Lord, to God. So our focus on beyond how we live our life and how we see things is what's acceptable to Him. It's interesting to monitor your own thoughts. 
about how you evaluate things and just how you make the decisions you make. Most of the time we're making decisions on how it affects us and what I want to do. I don't feel like doing that. So I've learned how to turn it into spiritual language. I'm not led. Because that sounds like it's put it off on God. God hasn't told me to do it, so I'm not going to do it. The, the truth is, I don't want to. To learn to walk in light means I've got to walk in terms of what's acceptable to Him, not to me. Oh, this is going to get better. <laughs> we may ask for Miriam Brown to come back. Verse 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. That doesn't sound like being user-friendly. That sounds like there's a line drawn between light and darkness. Verse 12, For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever manifest is light. Therefore he says, this is talking to the church now, Awake, you who sleep. I think somebody just did wake up. <laughs> Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. Notice the order. You have to wake out of your sleep. You have to arise from that dead spot you're in. And then Christ will give you light. Some of you have been looking for answers and directions, and the reason He's giving it, the reason you're not getting it is you're asleep. You've been lulled into this state of sleep, sleep by just your life, the pattern of your life and the things of life. They will lull. If you don't stay in vital contact with God, those things will lull you. And you'll, you'll, you'll eventually, I remember my, my, um, my aunt one time uh, was, was taking a bath and, 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 and her husband, my uncle, went out and did something and came back. She'd asked him to come back and check on her in about 12 minutes. Well, he forgot. He got busy doing something. He came back and the, the hot water had relaxed her so much she couldn't get out of the tub on her own. She'd become so comfortable and so relaxed in that state she couldn't get herself out. And I'm concerned because many Christians are in that spot. Not in a bathtub, but in their life. If there's not a vitality in your relationship, you know the best evidence of where you are spiritually? Maybe I better stand up behind this. <laughs> The best evidence of where you are spiritually is your prayer life. The best evidence of the spiritual health of a church is not the attendance on Sunday morning or Wednesday night because that's where we receive. The measure of the spiritual health of a church is the attendance at the prayer meeting. Because you don't come to a prayer meeting for what you get. You come to a prayer meeting for what you give. And the reason most people don't come to prayer meetings is they can't imagine being in church praying for an hour. What would I do for that hour? That means my relationship, my living vital relationship with God is so anemic, I can't imagine spending an hour with Him. Because the Bible says he's the source of life. How could it be boring to be in God's presence for an hour? We've talked about that before. Moses spent, 30, yeah, Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights in God's presence, didn't even eat or, or drink anything. He was, made, he was kept alive by the life that came out of God. The Bible says in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. You cannot imagine what joy begins to be like until you're in his presence. I heard one preacher say it this way. The strongest place you'll ever be in your life is on your knees. We better move along. So he says, Awake you who sleep, 
So it starts with waking up for where we are. When you wake up, you realize, I've been asleep. Because most of the time when you're asleep, you don't know you're asleep. Right? It's only when you wake up, you realize you were asleep. I woke up in the middle of the night. I don't know. I couldn't get back to sleep. My mind was on this message and on what God's been showing me. And, you know, I got up and prayed for a while. I read my Bible for a while. I finally knew I wouldn't disturb Anita. I went downstairs and, and, and slept on a bed downstairs. And, and just, you know, I'm lying there listening to his tapes and things like that. And finally, about half an hour before I was gonna get, had to get up, I think I may have gone to sleep. I can't tell for sure. But when I'm awake, I can tell I'm awake. So, awake, you who are asleep. Then he says, some of you have to be raised from the dead. Arise from the dead. And then Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly. That just is a big $3 word that means with your eyes open and see where you are. We understand this. When it com- I hope we understand this when it comes to driving our cars. Years ago, we were, I had another church, and we, were, we had several Bible studies, and one of them was in Connecticut. I think it was in Connecticut, but we were coming home from. We're coming home this, this lonely road one night. The kids are all asleep in the back of the car, and Edith's asleep next to me, and I'm going along, and, you know, like 11 o'clock at night, and the headlights went out. You know what? I didn't just keep driving, man. I drove that road every week. Oh, I know this road. There's a turn up here somewhere. I think I, it's about here, I think. And I'll just, I stop the car. Why? It's dangerous to drive a car at 55 miles an hour, because that's, of course, as fast as I would go. It's dangerous to drive a car at, at 50 miles an hour, 40 miles, at 10 miles an hour, if you can't see where you are and where you're going. And yet we live our lives in the driver's seat with the pedal to the floor going as fast as we can and we can't see where we are. Because I got my hands on the steering wheel. I can feel the accelerator. I know if I need to, I can hit that brake because I'm in control. But I have no clue where I am and what's around that corner. You get concerned sometimes because young drivers, they're so confident that they can stop the car and control the car, they have no idea when they go around a curve. They don't know. Somebody may be coming down the wrong side of the road, and they're not prepared for that. And yet in our life, we understand that driving. We've matured to that point. But living, and that's temporary. We're talking about eternal things here. We better move on. So circumspectly, Circumspectly means that you're aware of what's around you, not just what's in front of you. You're aware of the times. Redeeming the time because the days are evil, therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Therefore do not be drunk with wine, which is a dissipation, which means there's a waste but be filled, actually in the Greek it says, be continuously filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. What does that do? That keeps you in touch spiritually with God. That keeps your spirit man, which is your connection to God and the realm where he lives. It keeps that spirit man stirred up. when you're Because the very same things that wine will do to your mind, it will make you feel happy and anesthetize you for a while. But the Spirit of God, that's a counterfeit. For the real joy, the real encouragement, the real shock that you need is the Spirit of God, and He's in you. We just don't stir Him up. But when you're singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart unto the Lord, you're stirring up your connection to that realm of existence, which is what makes you aware of the time you're in. The revelation of that is not going to come from CNN or Fox News. It's not going to come through your mind. It's going to come in here. Because where we're talking about, the condition we're talking about, is a spiritual reality. Not, And that's why the world can't understand this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, the People that are not born again cannot understand the things of God because they are spiritually 
received or pri- appraised is what the word says. They're spiritually sensed. And since somebody that doesn't know Christ is not alive inside unto God, they cannot, they cannot, they have no receptor. So I've seen Christian leaders go on national TV trying to explain the things of God to people that can't possibly understand it. And so what this does is it stirs your receptor up. It's like wiping the sleep out of your eyes so that you can begin to say, oh, there's cars in front of me coming at me. (laughs) Ah! Recognizing the time that you're in. I I guess I got to tell the story. When we were dating, and I won't go into all that because, but most of you have heard me tell, she she was 800 miles away in school from my school. And so what I would do is I would leave at 5 o'clock in the morning on Friday because I arranged my classes, pick her up when she got out of school at 3 o'clock Friday afternoon. We'd drive an hour north to where her family lives and then stay there and then come back. I, she, would, I, she had a midnight curfew. So we would, midnight Sunday night, I would say goodbye to her, get in my car and drive all night through Columbus, Cleveland, Erie, Buffalo, Rochester, in the dead of winter. I remember one time coming back, I'm on 77. And the next thing I know, there's a semi in front of me, a semi behind me, and a semi on my left. The last thing I knew, I was alone on the road. Somewhere, these semis appeared out of nowhere. No, that's not what happened. I was dozing off. And I'm telling you, I got such a shot of adrenaline... It kept me awake for the next couple of hours. Just, oh my goodness. It woke me up to the fact that I had drifted off asleep. And I was in danger. It made me aware of the times I was in. All right, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. in here this morning. There we go. Now the Spirit, this isn't somebody's opinion, this isn't, this isn't Paul's opinion, the Spirit expressly or explicitly, clearly, definitively, definitely, so you cannot miss it, says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. There's going to come a time, and it may be the time we're in now. Some translations say many will depart from the faith. It doesn't say God's going to pull things away from them. It doesn't say God's going to get mad at us and pull things away from us. What he's saying is they will, there are deceiving spirits out there. And many people will listen to them and will wander away from their faith. Or be, let's put it this way, to them it looks like wandering, but they're being led by somebody away from their faith. Why? Because they didn't discern the times that they were in. I'm sharing this message with you because of the meetings we've just had and the message that we've just heard. I've heard this message now a number of times from her and from other people. I've also read books out there that says everything's going to be wonderful. God would never allow things like this to happen. But as I read, I've been really led to go back into Jeremiah lately. I've been reading in Jeremiah, and he faced the same kind of things. God was saying things that were about to happen and most of the prophets of that day and age says, no. Oh, if it, something's going to happen, it's going to be mild. But God wanted to prepare his people. But there was a voice in the land speaking what was going to happen. 
And I want to talk to you about understanding the times, but understanding implies knowing what to do with it. Notice what it said about the sons of Issachar. Not only did they recognize the time, it doesn't say recognize the time. That's the beginning of it. That's the waking up. But understanding means I've got some appreciation of what it means to me and what it means I'm to, what it means I'm to do. Because it went on to say, and therefore, they, because they had an understanding of the times, they understood what Israel, the people of God, ought to do. So we need some direction and instruction as what do we do with what we hear? How do we discern it, first of all? How do I discern what's God and what's not God? Because there are many voices out there. And then having a sense it's God, now what do we do with this? Because what we tend to do is hear something and react to it. And most of the time, that's panic. So I want to give you some instructions as God's given them to me. First of all, what, there's, there's, there's results. of Understand this. Unless God opens our eyes, we don't see where we are. So what that means is God's opening our eyes. It's not because we suddenly got so smart or had a speaker that's so smart. It means God's showing. He's turning a light on and showing us something. That's so important because if God's showing us something, He's doing something with us. First of all, it means he hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't left us out here. Oh, my goodness, we're facing calamity, and we're just left here by ourselves because God's the one saying, wake up. Look at this. So because it's God that's waking us, God that's showing us, what we have to do is learn to listen to what he's saying, not what everybody else is saying, and not what our mind's telling us. All right. So the first result of recognizing the time, we've already kind of talked about it a little bit, is it causes us to wake up. To wake up. We saw that in Ephesians. Because human nature is, we go to sleep. I see it every Sunday. I'm seeing it now. Not looking at anybody in particular. And it's people that mean well, it's not that, you know, they're rebellious or things like that. It's human nature because we feel the tiredness of our body. Sometimes it's because we don't like something we're hearing. But we're talking about how God has for everybody today $100,000 that you're going to get by next week and do the three things you've got to do. Every one of you. It's like our kids. Very different response when you say, clean your room, or it's time for ice cream. Same set of ears, same brains, same auditory canal, same auditory nerves, different motivation. So the first reason God will speak things to us and show us things is He wants to awaken us to where we are. I mean, if a parent smelled smoke, in the house, in the night. And all they were concerned of was how they were going to get out. And they didn't, I don't want to wake Junior up. He needs his sleep. He was up late last night studying, I hope was studying. Needs his sleep, the poor darling thing, I just, I'm going to let him sleep. That's a terrible parent. What would you do? I don't care if he sleep or not. He cannot sleep in this time because if he stays asleep, he may fry. So whatever I got to do to wake him up, because it's for his welfare that he wakes up, but having awakened him, he's got to decide whether he's going to leave the house or not, or he's going to go back to sleep. So the first thing God wants to do with us is awaken us. And sometimes it has to be startling. Some people, when you wake them up, all it takes is deer. It's time to get up. Oh, okay, thank you. But some of them, you've got to go in there with a pan and a spoon. Bam! It's like, uh, bam! And shake them out a bit, roll them out. Those of you who've been in the military, gone through basic training, 
The purpose of basic training is to acclimate you to what military life is like. They don't do it just with movies. They do it at 5 a.m. the first morning you're there. You have the shock of your life because you discover whether you're tired or rested. You discover whether you want to or you don't want to. You are getting out of bed. And there are two ways. You either get up because you've heard Reveille or they get you up. But you are getting out of bed. It is basic training is a wake-up call that you can no longer do things the way you want to do, that you can no longer do things on your timetable, you can't dress the way you want, you can't comb your hair the way you want, you can't do what you want, eat what you want, you do what they want you to do. And why do they do that? Because they're mean? Well, some of them may be. But why does the military do that? Because it wants to give you a wake-up call because you're being trained for a purpose. And that purpose is, at the end of your training, you're going to be put in a position where they're shooting live bullets at you. You're going to be placed in a war. And in that war, there's a risk and there's danger. And if you have not developed an awareness of what you are and where you are and some discipline, you're going to get shot and become a casualty. The first thing God needs to wake us up to is that we're in a war. We think we're in church. I was sharing something with Marianne when she was here, and I was uh, running some, uh, how to uh, approach something with her. And it was a good approach I had. She says, you don't understand. We're not in that time anymore. We're at war. And at war, you don't think like that. There's a different mentality in wartime. And Paul talks about, we don't have time this morning to go into it, talks to Timothy about enduring hardship as a good soldier. Putting up with things as a good soldier. Up until World War I, all, almost all the battles that were ever fought were fought out on battlefields by the professional soldiers. What changed primarily in World War I is the war was brought to the cities where the civilians lived. The soldiers either volunteered to be, volunteered to be in the war or they were drafted into it, but they were trained for the battle. In World War I, you had civilians brought into it, and whether they liked it or not, they woke up one day and discovered they were occupied. They all, at some point, had to discern the time they were in. But by the time they did, it was too late. They were in it. And one of the things they had to face was, I don't have a choice of whether I'm going to be in this war or not. I'm in it. Now that I'm in it, I've got a choice of how I fight. And I think what holds so much of the church back is we're still, we're still hoping we're not going to be in a fight. But you're in one. And until you accept that, you're going to struggle. Because you won't pick your weapons up and use them because you're trying to be blessed. I'm blessed while there's bullets being shot at you. Imagine a soldier standing up. I'm blessed. The next soldier says, if that's a blessing, it's not what I want. All right. So the first thing it does is it causes us to wake up, to get out of complacency. Human nature likes status quo. We'll put up with it even if it's hard. That's the challenge in some situations where you have abusive situations in family. The most difficult thing is to get the person being abused to leave because they're used to it. And the, and the abuse is more comfortable than the uncertainty what it's going to be like outside. So it, it wakes us up to realize I can't stay where I am. Human nature just likes to settle in. And we'll put up with all kinds of things just to settle in. And a wake-up call is to get us up and realize, I can't do that. It's to recognize there's a need to change. I've had God really meddling in my life lately. Because I've awakened to realize I cannot stay where I am. There are areas, I talked with the men about it yesterday, where I need to mature in certain areas. We all do, so don't look at me that way. 
There's things God's been dealing deep down inside of me that he's left alone for a long time. I'm not talking about moral things like that. Attitudes. Parts of me I've been trying to hold on to. You say, I want that now. That's his preparation. It's a wake-up call. It's preparing. So the choice I made of whether I obey him or not, it's not just whether I want to. He's trying to prepare me. And either I cooperate with him or I don't. It alerts our senses because when we're sleepy, we don't realize some things that are going on in us. But when you're awakened and you're jolted, now when I, when I, when I woke up and realized there were these three semis around me, my adrenaline, I, my eyes wouldn't move. I couldn't blink for an hour. My senses were all on guard. And it motivates us to get rid of whatever hinders us and to develop in us whatever we need. Most of us don't like discipline. The church is the most undisciplined place on the face of the earth. The religions out there that are trying to take over the world are infinitely more disciplined than the church is. Now, let me say some things about warnings from God, what they're not. They are not designed to create fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. So when you hear something, and it's, it's, it's not what you, want to th- what you want to think is going to happen, it's not for the purpose of making you afraid. In 1 Chronicles chapter 20, there's a story of, of Judah, and, and they woke up one morning and discovered that there were three armies bearing down on them. And in those three armies were trying to destroy them, and it woke up and said when the report was given to King Jehoshaphat, he feared. That was his reaction. But it's, it's what you do next that counts. It's what you do with that fear. What he did instead is he set himself aside to seek the Lord of what God would say. God does not show you things to come to make you afraid. First of all, fear is of the devil. It's not of God. So God's not going to try to do something to get you into his influence. Secondly, fear does not motivate you to do anything good. It doesn't motivate you to fight. It doesn't motivate. It anesthetizes you. Fear just makes you shrink up inside. It also causes, when you really get afraid, your senses all kind of pull inside. So it can't be God. It can't be preparing you for... Instead, what it is is preparing you for defeat. So when you hear a word like we've heard, and you, and you, it's understandable if your first reaction is fear, but you cannot let that stay because that's a weapon of the enemy so that he can entrap you. God's warnings are not to create fear. It's to motivate us to change. It's to motivate us to listen to what he's trying to say about it. Because remember the sons of Issachar understood the times and what Israel should do. Fear paralyzes. It doesn't motivate us. Fear is a weapon of the enemy. Most people miss a verse in Revelation. They read the book of Revelation and they get scared. But verse 3 of chapter 1 says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time that is near. So the whole tone and the purpose of that prophecy and revelation is that we are to be blessed by reading it. Not afraid. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, when he's talking about the rapture of the church. At the end of this, Suddenly, in the terrible times, the church will be pulled out of it. Then he says, comfort one another with these words. So words of warning from God should bless us and should comfort us. That means if they're not blessing us and they're not comforting us, I'm not hearing them correctly. And here's the most important part. We need the right perspective when we see what's coming. The first thing 
above all, is to recognize that God loves us. Hebrews chapter 13, I think it's around verse 5, says, He will never abandon you or leave you. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Understand this, that whatever's to come, He's in the middle of it with us. Paul talked, I was reading this morning in, um, in, I think it's 2 Timothy. He talked about, at the end, all my friends deserted me, and I stood before the judge alone, but the Lord was with me and strengthened me. Amen. God loves you. And because he loves you, he wants to prepare you for what is to come. Not to harm you, not to hurt you. He wants to show you the way through it. But if we panic, we won't hear his voice. If we panic, we'll hear the voice of the enemy and we'll follow his instructions. So you cannot panic. You have to get into the Word. You have to spend time with God. These are why all these things that have been drilled into us for years and years and years are so critical that we do those basic things that we know to do. And then I want to get down to the last point, and this is really the most important. He will face whatever it is with us, and here's the way through it. Here's the understanding. Understand this, that God has put you and me at this time, in this situation, for a purpose. God chose, knowing what the time was going to be like, chose to put you and me here at this time. Why? Because He has a purpose for His will to be done and His kingdom to come. And what will, this is what the Lord showed me this week, what will bring you through the times without fear, what will keep the fear away from the door, what will give you discernment about what to do and not to do, what will, what will bring, keep you within protection is when you learn to keep your focus on God's purpose for me in this time. The sons of Issachar understood the times they were in. And they understood what Israel ought to do. Psalm 91, the greatest psalm about God's protection and provision. We love to read that, when, especially when things are difficult. But the key to that whole psalm is the first verse. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. Where is that secret place? It's right in the middle of God's purpose for your life. God may put you in difficult situations, but the safest place to be is right where He's put you. He may drop you in the middle of a war zone, but the safest place to be is where God has put you because where God has put you is where He is. I want to close with a story. We're about to summarize it, but it's the story of Esther. And most of you are familiar with the story Esther's a story of part of the Jews that still remained in captivity under the Persian king Xerxes. And what happened is, um, through a series of events, one of the Jewish young girls was brought into his harem and was invited to, to, um, to be chosen as one of his queens. The king did not know that she was Jewish. There was an evil man named Haman who conspired to destroy the Jews because he was jealous of them, and that's what happens today. And she had an uncle named Mordecai. So Esther's living in the palace. She's highly favored by the king, but the king has so many wives that he only calls them to him like once a month, I think is what it was. And Mordecai finds out that Haman has convinced the king to set a rule by which the Jews are going to be exterminated. Now, she's comfortable. She's in the palace. Nice clothes. She's blessed. Nice food. Favor of the king. I mean, it's a good setup. And God put her there. All this prosperity, all this privilege, and God put her there. Oh, God's so good to me. Oh, I love you, God. You're so good to me. Oh, I'm so comfortable. This is so wonderful that you would have me this comfortable. And Mordecai finds out what's going on. 
And he sends a message to the queen. And he says to her, you need to go to the king and use the favor that God gave you to tell the king what Mordecai is plan- what, what Haman is planning to do. Now understand this. It's not like today where she could just kind of walk in and say, hey, king, lover, dear, sweetheart, we got a little problem here because the king and the wives were not on the equal level like husband and wives are today. She could only come in when he called her. And the rule of the court was if you opened the door and came in the door and you had not been invited, you were executed unless out of his mercy he pointed his scepter towards you, which he did rarely. And this is what Mordecai, this is what Mordecai her uncle, says to her because she was afraid. In Esther 4, so they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai, which was, hey, this is dangerous for me. And Mordecai told them to answer her, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews, but from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And this was the perspective he wanted her to see. But who knows whether you may have been brought into this kingdom for such a time as this. When she began to realize the time she was in, the threat, because in the palace, she's out of touch with what's going on. She didn't realize that her people were about to be destroyed and annihilated because she was safe. And, and she, so things were good to her. But the people of God were about to be destroyed. And through a prophet, although he wasn't technically a prophet, but through the voice of a man that understood the times, spoke to her and said to her, this is why you, what you must do. And her first reaction was to realize what it might cost her, her life. And naturally she had a reticence. She was afraid for herself. And so often when we hear prophecies, I'm not talking about flaky things that are out there, but we hear things like we've just heard. Our first reaction is, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? I, I, I need to stockpile things. I need to put guns in the basement. I've got to get water. I gotta go, I, I, how do I know when I've got enough of that stuff? I'm taking it into my own hands by my own understanding. That's not understanding the times and what God wants us to do. It's out of fear. And anything you do out of fear, the devil will be behind it and he'll drive it. Amen. That's whose voice you'll hear if you give in to the fear. And Mordecai says to her, this is what you must do. You must step back and stop looking at how this affects you. And what you might re- must realize is that you're in that position you're in right now. You're in that comfortable, wonderful, blessed position because God chose to put you there for this purpose. You're not there so that you can enjoy the riches of the king's palace. You're there because by that position you have a voice that nobody else has to the one man that can deliver God's people. And so this danger that's coming upon you, don't look at it as a danger, but look at it as the purpose of your life. You were put there for such a time as this. In the past when I've heard these things spoken about what's going to come and, 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 and this even, you know, a lot of it's just common sense, just looking at where things are going. And you start thinking about that, oh my goodness, why am I born now? And then the Spirit of God rises up in me with the exact words. But you've been put here by me for such a time as this. Because what happens, she says, look what he says to her. He says, if you don't do this, God will find another way to deliver. But if you obey him, and if you don't, then you will end up in the same, even though you're in what you think in the safety and everything's good now, you'll end up in the same place that your brethren will end up. In other words, you really have no choice. Faith Christian Center 
and you've heard me say this before, was formed 31 years ago by a man that God called up from Texas and his wife. We've been through all kinds of things. We've had, in the past, we've had sections of leadership walk out and then come back eventually. We've had the music team leave years ago and walk out. We've gone through all kinds of things and came back. Pastor Sam paid an incredible price to establish a church here 31 years ago when the spiritual atmosphere in New England was not what it is today. We've come through many dangers, toils, and snares. And God has supernaturally preserved this church. It wasn't because of Pastor Sam or any other leader or me. It's God's hand is upon this church. We've never had, to my knowledge, a month in the red financially. That's astounding. Through the economies we've gone through and through the things this church has gone through. Instead, this church has been an incredible blessing to missionaries around the world and other ministries here in the United States. And that's wonderful and that's good. I look at the level of gifting and talent that God has put here. And I step back and I say, okay, God, this is wonderful. We're blessed. Why? Why have you done things here that you've not done for others? Why? And all that comes up in me is for such a time as this. As we came to the end of the meetings on Monday night, for those of you that were here and weren't here, I've never felt the Spirit of God like a laser like I did that night. Speaking to this church of our purpose and how God will get us to that place. I have no fear. I have tremendous peace because we're in the middle of God's will. I don't know all that that means. I just know that's where, with all my heart, we're going to walk. We all have a choice of being part of that or not being part of that. And each of you will make a choice. I believe God's brought us here so that together we can do His will at this time. It is a holy purpose. It is a godly purpose. It is a righteous purpose. It is a purpose that God has had in His mind and His heart before the foundation of the world. All that he's seen the church go through in the history of the church, because the Bible says he sees the end from the beginning. He's seen this day and this hour. And he knows how to prepare us. When we look at ourselves and say, God, why would you put me here? Why would you put us here? God knows what he's doing. And God knows how to get us there. But what I want to tell you this morning is, sum everything up, is you need to be aware of the times that you're in. And all you got to do is have your eyes open and your ears open and be willing to let God show you. And the second thing is understand that the safest, most secure place in times like this is to do what He's called us to do. Because that's why we're here. That's why you're here for such a time as this.